Well, friends, I'd like to draw your attention this morning to Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. That will be our text this morning. And um, we have Bibles provided in the seat in front of you if you don't have one. Mark chapter 11. We'll read our text and then ask for the Lord's blessing to start things off. This is the word of the Lord. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And they passed by in the morning. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, who also who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Father, we remember your words from heaven Regarding your incarnate Son, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. We pray for grace to listen to the Son that you have sent and commended to us. And Jesus, we thank you for coming. We thank you for being one of us. We thank you for speaking these words and doing these things that we might know you and be a part of your kingdom. Please work in our lives through your word. And Holy Spirit, Please do a work in our hearts to soften us, to make us alive and alert to the things that you would teach us from Scripture, uh, to make us responsive and fruitful, to cut away sin where you see it in our lives, and to revive us in holiness and joy and righteousness, all the good fruit that you intend for your people to produce. Give me strength and clarity and faithfulness in my proclamation. Give us all ears to hear to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Gardening can be a laborious and complicated undertaking. Of course, there's different levels of difficulty you could take on in gardening. There's different sizes of yards, 
different kinds of landscaping you might try, different uh, foods you might try to grow if you're growing uh, a garden with vegetables. Some people just want to water their lawn and, and cut it. Other people are managing soil pH and moisture levels for five different kinds of vegetables and ten ornamental trees in their yard. There's all kinds of different ways you could do it. But at the risk of oversimplifying, at the end of the day, what gardening is about is getting rid of the vegetation you don't want and cultivating the vegetation that you do want. However complex you you take it, however much you're doing or not doing, that's what you want. You want to get rid of the vegetation you don't want and help grow the things that you do want. You're cutting away, and you're cultivating. You're cutting away, you're cultivating. You mow the lawn, that's cutting. And then you fertilize it, you're cultivating. You pull out weeds, you're cutting. You're, you're, you're getting rid of things. And then you water, you're cultivating. And in a spiritual and much more important way, Jesus in our text this morning fulfills a gardening role. He's cutting away fruitless weeds. And he's cultivating the growth of truly meaningful fruit that redounds to God's glory. So in short, what we see this morning, what God's word is doing is showing us that Jesus is the Lord who purges false fruit and cultivates the real thing. Jesus is the Lord who purges away, cuts away false fruit and cultivates the real thing. And this text then is, you can kind of hear both in the cutting and purging and then in the cultivating. This is both a warning and an encouragement for us. That's what we want to tune our ears to. How is the Lord warning us? And how is the Lord encouraging us? And we'll see that as we walk through three features in this text. Three features. The first one is Jesus' lordly action. Jesus' lordly action, showing that he is in fact the Lord in verses 15 through 19. Now you may wonder, wait a minute, that's not the beginning of our text. What about verses 12 to 14? Well, that's a good question. As we read through the text, you might have noticed that the, the story unfolds in a strange way. First, we have this little scene with Jesus in the fig tree on his way to Jerusalem. And then he gets to the temple and he cleanses it from the abusive practices. And then after that, we get another note about the fig tree. What's going on? Well, Mark, our, our author, has a certain storytelling feature he likes to use. We could be boring and call it ABA, but I like, uh, others have called it, this is much more interesting, a Markin sandwich. Okay, this is a Markin sandwich we're going to bite into here. Meaning, look, we've got, we've got bread on the edges and we've got meat in the middle. The way that one story is wrapped in another story, in the beginning and the end, it, it, one of them enfolds the other. And, and the combined effect is to put the two stories together and show us there's some profound connection between the two. They're meant to really interpret each other. And that's what's going on with this fig tree, temple, fig tree thing. We, we tackle it first by looking then at the central scene, the temple action in verses 15 and 19. And then next we'll zoom out and look at the fig tree thing and better understand what Jesus is doing in the temple. And then we'll go and look finally at, at, at the end after uh, they, they see the fig tree again. So last week we left off with Jesus entering the, the temple. He, he had this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and he's starting to unveil and more clearly show that he is indeed the Messiah. The one who in fact will suffer, not the one who will go immediately to a throne of glory. But we have Jesus in verse 11. He entered the city. He went right to the temple and he surveyed its activity. And then he withdrew for the night to the outlying village of Bethany. 
It was no tourist visit, but he was there to audit the temple's Lord. He was there to oversee it as its master. Some of the last words penned in the Old Testament was Malachi in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. We have this very thing prophesied. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. The Lord will, will suddenly, what, what Micah is, or Malachi is saying, the Lord will suddenly come to his temple and like a metal refiner with his fire or like a cleaner with his soap, he's going to do some scrubbing. He's going to do some cleaning up of shop. He's going to purify away defilement. And we might ask, well, what is to be cleansed? What had to be cleansed? Well, the, the text refers to the activities of buying and selling and money changing and carrying things through the temple. You hear about all that in verses 15 and 16. Now, Jesus was not in the temple building proper, the, the holy place where the priests ministered, kind of the epicenter. It wasn't that building. It was the larger temple complex area that had multiple buildings and yards. And the outermost, you have to think through kind of the spiritual geography of God's temple, that the, the farther out you get from the center is the less holy and is more accessible. So the, the, that most outermost yard, so to speak, was called the Court of the Gentiles. And that was as close as a non-Jew could come to the holy place in God's temple. And, and in this place, the Court of the Gentiles, there had recently developed a business where people would sell sacrificial animals to pilgrims who had come to town for the Passover. And it's nice, convenient. You don't have to bring your animal all the way to Jerusalem. You can buy one. The money changing was to convert people's money. They had to pay a temple tax. And this was to convert their money into the coinage that it had to be paid in. There's nothing inherently wrong with buying an animal to sacrifice it to the Lord. Nothing inherently wrong, of course, with converting your money. Verse 16, we have people, probably what's going on is they're just using the temple as a shortcut. They're, they're, they're traveling through that temple area on their way somewhere else carrying their things. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those three practices, but none of that is what the temple was for. That's the issue. And by their action, these folks are committing two simultaneous sins. First, they're, they're profaning the name of God. They're misusing his sacred space that's supposed to be devoted to his worship as though he didn't matter, as though his name and his glory were unimportant. We can do these ordinary commercial activities in his holy space. The second sin that they're doing is they're blocking would-be worshipers from this most accessible area of the temple where Jews and Gentiles could seek him in worship. They're gumming up the temple with their own activities. So, so they're sullying God's name and then they're blocking others from the blessing of worship, communion with him. So Jesus comes and he drives out the merchants who are doing this. He upturns the furniture that they use. And he blocks off the, the, the shortcut people. Now, this would have been a very large and crowded space. So it's not as though he took the place over. Uh, but nevertheless, this would have been a dramatic demonstration against the temple and its worship practices. It would have drawn a lot of attention. And he takes people's attention. In verse 17, he teaches them. It's likely he actually teaches more than what we have. It's just a summary of his teaching in verse 17. 
But he explains his action by means of two Old Testament texts. First describing what the temple is for, and then describing what has become of it. So when he says in verse 17, it is, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? He's quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7. This is what the house of the Lord is supposed to be. A place where all the nations can seek the Lord in worship and especially in communing with him in prayer. Not only for Israel, but again for the whole world. That's what the temple is supposed to be. And then this den of robbers comes from Jeremiah 7, 11, where again some of Israel's religious leaders were hiding out in the temple. It was kind of their place where they, they, they sought safety, but then they were going out and committing all these sins and crimes. And he uses that terminology against them. You've made it a den of robbers. Now, there's no reason to think that he's mad at them for predatory business practices. We might think, oh, they must be exploiting people, overcharging, things like this. That's probably not the issue here. The word that he uses for robber means someone who violently attacks to steal. This is not a white-collar criminal who overcharges. This is a highwayman. This is a, a thief who assaults. And the imagery he's using is that they have stolen the temple away from the people. They have stolen it away from God's holy usage and they have turned it into a lair or a den for their own wicked practices. In verse 18, we hear the amazed crowds. They're astonished at his teaching and then the violently opposed religious leaders who are the chief priests and the scribes. The scribes would be the legal scholars of the day. And they're thinking, certainly, who is Jesus to do something like this? Who does he think he is? To, to drive away these merchants and to condemn their action and to declare the true purpose of God's temple. Well, here's who he is. We, we heard about this last week. He is the Lord. Just in the words of Malachi, the Lord will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. He's coming to his place, the temple, because he is God in the flesh. He has a right to come. And exercise this kind of authority. He has a right to clean house. He has a right to declare what this place is about. And as worshipers of God, this story reminds us that He, Jesus, is sure to bring accountability and judgment for how we worship. Every one of us will give account to God for how we worship Him. Or how we didn't worship Him. Maybe how we pretended to worship Him. Or how we abused the worship of Him. Last week I introduced this, this illustration of parents who left their kids at home and they went off and, and the kids were old enough that they should have been able to take care of the place, have some responsibility. Parents go off somewhere, they come back and they open the door and the place is a total chaotic mess. There's all these messes the kids left, they didn't clean anything. Now what's going to happen when they see that? There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be accountability and a reckoning. I left you in, in charge with certain things you were supposed to be doing, and you didn't do them. And so when authority arrives on a scene like that, there will be a reckoning. And it's true, we are the people of God in Christ. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ. It's not the quality of our worship that saves us or secures us before God. So that's the thing we need to make very clear. We, that would, would not be a work that we, by which we earn our way to God's graces. But we still face his accountability in the final day. We still face judgment. Peter, 1 Peter 4.17 says that it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And our text shows Jesus in a, an unusual 
but holy condition, which is the emotion of anger. Jesus is angry. It's become all too easy in our culture to domesticate Christ into a generic, non-threatening, unconditional affirmer. Jesus is nodding and smiling at whatever we may want to do or say or believe. But here he's fierce and fiery. He is indignant and full of wrath. But it's worth noting, what is it that makes Jesus angry? What is it that arouses his wrath? And it's not the petty and self-centered reasons that usually cause the great majority of our anger, if we're honest with ourselves. Rather, it is a righteous, self-controlled strike against something that is truly unjust and repugnant. These people are flouting the Lord's presence and his name. They are breaking the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. They are taking his name in vain by their callous defilement of his holy space. What makes you angry? What does it take to make you angry? If we could somehow take a mental video reel of the last 10 times that you got angry, what causes would we discover? If we were to ask ourselves that question, the last 10 times I got angry, what are the things that made me angry? Which is more likely to fire us up to arouse our anger? Something like this, a true violation of the third commandment that sullies the holy name of God? Or somebody making a mistake that costs you 10 minutes of your daily schedule unplanned? Ouch. (laughs) That's autobiographical, by the way. Ouch. How much more likely are we to get angry at inconvenience to ourselves than dishonor against the Lord? So what I'm asking is, where are the affections of our hearts? Are they devoted to what truly matters? God himself. Our, Our emotional life, our emotional responses will reflect what our heart treasures. And Jesus' ruling and judging function over his people's worship does not end with the old covenant temple. We, the church, await his coming. He's coming not only to complete our redemption, but to test the quality of our works, to test the quality of our worship, to subject them to the flames that test what they're really made of. And the things that were made of good materials, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, things that last that were built on the gospel, that were built on good motives, that will last to our reward. Everything else will be burned away. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Jesus is not done discriminating, testing, auditing his people. What will the Lord find when he comes to examine the fruits of our lives and our worship? Well, that's the Lord's Jesus, the Lord Jesus' lordly action, cleansing the temple in his zeal for God to receive honor that he deserves from Israel and from all the nations. But as I said, we need to zoom out a little bit and look at the surrounding text to make fuller sense of it. So that brings us to the second feature of our text, which is Jesus' rejection of false fruit. Jesus' rejection of false fruit. This we see in the two little fig tree episodes, verses 12 to 14 and verses 20 and 21. So I'll read that again. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance of fig tree and leaf, they went to see if he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Then after the episode in the temple, verse 20, 
as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This first scene stirs up all sorts of questions in our minds. Why in verse 13 did Jesus expect to find figs on the tree when they were out of season? Mark goes out of his way to tell us they were out of season. This isn't fig time. And then in verse 14, Jesus seems to be so disturbed that he didn't find figs when after all they're not even to be expected that he seems to act like a petulant child and curse the tree outright, it may seem to us. What is going on? That doesn't seem like Jesus. Well, the Lord is being neither ignorant nor petty in this incident. We have to understand his actions are following a well-worn tradition of symbolic actions by God's prophets. Symbolic actions by God's prophets that are meant to demonstrate an object lesson. Jesus was not fooled by this fig tree. He wasn't immature and ticked off that he couldn't get fruit. And so he just said, ah, go ahead and die, fig tree. This is all a drama actually meant to show us something. You have these, these incidents, like in Isaiah 20, the prophet Isaiah goes naked and barefoot for three years. That's wild. Just think about that. For three years to predict the coming conquest of Egypt by Assyria. In Jeremiah 13, there's this episode where a spoiled cloth will picture the spoiled pride of Judah. And then in Ezekiel 14, this one's maybe the wildest of all. The prophet has to set up a model of Jerusalem and lie on his side next to it for over a year to simulate the upcoming siege. Yeah, it's not necessarily the most fun calling to be a prophet in the Old Testament. Some interesting dramatic uh, scenes that God had his people play out in order to demonstrate something of the reality of what he was prophesying. And so it is with Jesus here. Again, it's crucial to notice how the fig tree before and after the temple scene And then you've got that cleansing of the temple in the middle. So the fig tree represents Jerusalem's temple worship, which itself was was emblematic of the whole nation's religious life. The, the, The temple was really the center, the epicenter of the nation's whole religious life. So it's got leaves. That's something to notice. This thing had life, had signs of life. It's got leaves. It looks good from far away. But when you get up close... And you see what's really happening there. You find it's just an illusion. There's no real fruit. There's no substance. Remember Jesus' accusations against the Pharisees and scribes way back in chapter 7, verse 6. The shoe fits here as well. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. There is an outward show of life that suggests maybe there's fruitfulness. But when you get close, you find there's no fruit. And this concept of fruitfulness is a frequent Old Testament image for the Lord's purpose among his people. Even in the text we read from Jeremiah 24, uh, we, we had the people being compared to different kinds of fruits. And it's really an assessment of their kind of their, their moral quality, their relationship with the Lord. When Isaiah, in chapter 5 of Isaiah, he explains his famous vineyard parable that he tells. He provides this helpful background for the sort of way that this fig tree imagery is supposed to work. He says in Isaiah 5, 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice. That's the fruit. He goes out harvesting. Where's my fruit? He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So in in short, the outcome of the Lord's investment in his covenant people is supposed to be the production of righteousness. 
He means for his people to produce fruit ethically, meaning good works. And he means for them to produce fruit doxologically, which just means worship. So so the good fruit of righteousness and praise, even that terminology you see in Isaiah 61.11, he will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That's what the Lord means to produce among his people when he draws near in covenant. Righteousness and praise. So Jesus finds this fig tree fruitless and he says, Oh, all you have are leaves? All show and no substance? Fine, then you are done. You are done. And as they discover the next day, the tree is dead. And this is what he's signifying with the cleansing of the temple. God has visited his people's worship and he has assessed the fruit like a farmer out in his field and he has found the results severely wanting. He's found leaves, but no fruit. Jesus' action wasn't just stirring up a scene. And let's be honest, what Jesus did, upturning and disrupting everything and then left, we can be assured that the, the same activities just picked right up after he left. He didn't, he didn't change what was going on in the temple ultimately. But what he did was an authoritative pronouncement that God has done with this place. Pretty leaves notwithstanding, there is no fruit. There is no righteous substance. Back to our analogy of the parents coming home, the disastrously messy home. Uh, It may be that the kids made some minimal half-hearted effort toward cleaning. They gave a little show of it. Like there was a big spill on the ground and one of the kids bothered to get the mop and just kind of bring it and leave it next to the spill. Like, oh, you kind of made a show of of like you were going to try to clean, but you didn't. Maybe there was a, a bunch of dirty laundry everywhere, but somebody piled up a little bit of it and didn't do any more than that. I'll show there's no real fruit. There's no real substance. God is through with Israel's temple. He is through with this religious order. It is shot through with hypocrisy. Jesus will spell this out even more fully a little bit on in chapter 13. In in verse 1, the the disciples are amazed. They're saying, look at this amazing building. Isn't it beautiful? Look at these leaves. And Jesus says in in verse 2, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. He goes on to describe the destruction of the temple. And because there's pretty leaves and no fruit, it's all coming down. If you know a little bit of history, that's exactly what happened. Just a generation after Jesus, as a result of the Jewish revolt, the Romans came in the year AD 70 and they tore the place down. And never again, down to this very day, as Jerusalem had a temple. And just as this temple cleansing represents God's rejection of Israel's hypocritical worship, so at the same time, this event moves Jesus even more closely to the cross. It moves them farther along in their rejection of Jesus. And you have this hinted at, actually it's not even hinted, it's pretty clear in verse 18, they are seeking a way to destroy him. So we're seeing another domino fall toward what will eventually be the cross of Christ. In all his covenant dealings, the Lord intends to produce a people who embody virtues that reflect his own holy and righteous character. He draws near to his people to tend us as a garden, and he's looking for us to produce fruit. Now, now old covenant Israel failed to fulfill this purpose, not because they're worse than us, but because they're made of the same thing we are, which is old Adam. They're made of the same sin nature we have, and it won't yield to the Lord. There will be no fruit from the natural man who's dead 
and trespasses and sins. Which is why in the new covenant we have the so much better promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, writing the law on our very hearts. But it's so easy for us to think that God's dealings with us end in ourselves. He has saved me and he has made me his own. And we can kind of end there like that's the end of our, our, our interest. But when I ask the question, for what end? Why did he save me? So that I could serve myself with, with the, the riches of grace that he gives? No, it's so that I can grow into being like him so that he's glorified as I reflect his character. And I can say that individually, me, we can say that corporately, we, he is growing, uh, he, he saved us to grow us into his likeness so we can glorify him by reflecting his character and so that we can fulfill our original created purpose to image God. A wonderful privilege that we get to show something about the beauty of God himself. But we corrupt this purpose when we make worship about ourselves. When we profane the Lord's name and break the third commandment as they were doing in the temple. We corrupt this purpose when our unholy lives block others from knowing and experiencing the Lord. Like they're, they're gumming up the temple so people can't use it. Friends, how might we be doing this even now? Are there any ways that irreverence and impurity in your life may be blocking others from the joy and life of knowing Christ? Are you making moral compromises before the world or speaking of God in a trivial way such that it would be very difficult to turn around and speak the life-giving words of Christ to them? We have all seen, it's sad, it's cringy, it's tragic how irreverent and hypocritical Christians can put a stumbling block in the way of Christ between God and others. And the effect is potent. It can be tragic. Now, some non-believers are glad to point to such examples of hypocrisy and of Christians not taking God seriously. And they might be using these as a screen to justify their evil rejection of, uh, of God. He will hold them responsible for that. But on our end, are we feeding ammunition to the enemies of Christ by making it look as though this whole thing, Jesus, his gospel, his church, it's all just a big deception. Or are we possibly disheartening the poor in spirit, those who most urgently need to flee for refuge in Christ because our conduct undermines our claims about him? May it never be, brothers and sisters. Rather, may our lives produce the real fruit that Jesus commends. And that brings us to the third feature of our text, Jesus' commendation of real fruit. Jesus' commendation of real fruit. Fruit. This is verses 22 to 25. So when Peter said, Look, the fig tree you cursed has withered, Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So the fig tree thing leaves off. They pass by. They see it's dead. Peter says, look, it died. But the, the, the miraculous effect here of Jesus' words actually provides a pivot point into a new topic that he wants to talk about. And it, it creates a new opportunity to instruct the disciples about the sort of fruit that God wants to bring forth in their lives. Remember back in verse 17 that Jesus said the temple was supposed to be what? 
a house of prayer. And so it's no accident that by the end of the passage, we come full circle all the way back around to the topic of prayer. And it might seem, if we don't really think too much about it on first glance, first impression, it may seem out of place. Why is Jesus suddenly giving us instructions about prayer? It's not out of place at all. It's deliberate, it's subtle, but it's very powerful. Jesus is telling the disciples that they are the new praying community. The house is getting shut down. So guys, let's talk about how you're going to pray. You will be the new house of prayer for the nations. Jesus' people are the new place of fruitful worship. And New Testament authors would later pick up on this theme, calling the church, not the building, the people, the church, the temple of God, consisting of its members. Ephesians 2.21, in Christ, the whole structure, that is the church, the people, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Jesus is the new center of the fruitful community of God's people, Jew and Gentile. Fulfilling the failed purpose of the old temple. And so like a farmer working in his field, Jesus teaches his disciples about three fruits that God means to produce in us. Three fruits God means to produce in us. The first one is faith. You hear it right out of the gate in verse 22. Jesus' answer to Peter, have faith in God. And then in verses 23 and 24, he goes on to describe the bold prayer that has faith as its burning core. Prayer is the outcome of that faith. Now, he's not here describing faith as it initially grabs hold of Jesus in conversion, which it does. Really, he's focusing here on faith as an ongoing virtue in the life of discipleship. In essence, he's saying, my people keep trusting God. Be a people who trust God. Not just in initially when we come to receive Christ, but ongoingly trust God. In verse 23, the one who prays for the mountain to be thrown into the sea trusts God with an unwavering, firm faith. It's so emphatic. He says he believes and he does not have doubt, but trusts, believes that what he says will come to pass. The Apostle James will expand on this issue of praying with faith and not with doubt. In James 1 verses 5 to 8, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The reason I think this James text is a helpful illumination for, for what we're dealing with with Jesus is that James is focusing on what kind of person is believing and what kind of person is doubting. And just like James, so with Jesus, the emphasis and the interest here is not on technique, but character. James is asking the question, what kind of person is doubting versus what kind of person is trusting? He's not giving us a cheat code for the universe, a way to simply leverage whatever we want from God. That's a way we might be tempted to take these verses a cheat code for, the, for how do we get what we want from God. He's talking about what kind of person we are in our stance toward him. In saving a people through his son, God is after a trusting people. That's the fruit he wants to produce in us. Let's give him the fruitful worship of pure-hearted trust. 
The second and closely related fruit, of course, is prayer. And that's what verses 23 to 25 are directly about. It's not just faith, but it's believing prayer. As prayer, of course, expresses faith. We ask God to do things and even sometimes grand and impossible things. Things so uh, vividly uh, illustrated like this, this hypothetical scenario of praying to, that a mountain will fall into the sea. We would pray things of that nature, that kind of impossible thing, because we trust that God can and will do them. And our God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has availed His almighty power to His people's prayer. He actually hears. He actually acts. He answers. Sometimes in dramatic ways that make our jaws drop. Sometimes He does far more abundantly than all we could ask or imagine, as Paul says in Ephesians 3. Now, verses 23 to 24 raise more questions, don't they? Wait a minute, Jesus. Are you saying that God will say yes to every prayer, no matter what we pray? All we have to do is believe enough, as though faith itself is kind of the power that makes prayer happen? The answer is no. Prayer is always constrained by the revealed will of God. There are certain prayers that no matter how much we want it or think he'll do it, if we're misinformed about his will and his character, he won't do it. But the prayers he answered are the ones that are in accord with his will. Those are the ones that he answers yes to. There are some prayers, I mean, we have even here later in Mark, you have Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14. He's struggling in prayer about the coming suffering ahead, and he prays for something that God says no to. Is Jesus weak in faith? Do you not believe enough? He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. But he doesn't end there. He says, yet, not what I will, but what you will. He has a request. He has a desire. But he says, I, I know what you will. And that's essentially what he's saying. I know that this thing I'm asking for is not what you will. And so I'm submitting myself. I know the plan. I know the plan. I, I, I was a, a participant in getting here to the cross. I want what you want. So since prayer is regulated by faith, that's, that's important that it starts in verse 22. Believe in God. Prayer is regulated by faith. It is a response to God's self-revelation. It is a trusting response to his character and his will. Now there are some health and wealth preachers out there who love these verses and use them to try to convince their parishioners to pray for whatever their carnal hearts want. All you got to do is crank up the faith level to 10 and you'll get it. Even more darkly, they'll scold suffering people for lacking enough faith. If you if, if you believed enough, you would have gotten a yes from God. The irony then is that these preachers are using verses 23 to 24 to do precisely what Jesus condemns in verse 17 they're irreverently obstructing others from worshiping the lord with true faith that's fixed to his promises but i'd say on the contrary most of us are probably more likely to fall into the opposite error which is thinking that our prayers are ineffective and unimportant realistically i think that's probably more common in this room jesus says not so god can move mountains through your prayers things and this is hyperbolic speech but it's meant to prove a point. Things beyond what we could ask or imagine, again, in Paul's words. Do we pray for big things with confidence, knowing that our Lord hears and acts? 
Church, let's be a people of bold faith and resolute trust in the Lord. Pray for big things, especially things that pertain to what we know He's interested in, things He's promised to do, the spread of His gospel, the maturity and fruitfulness of His people, good works that He's put before you that He knows, that you know He wants you to do. Things that feel impossible. There could be no way it could happen. Pray with faith, believe. He will do it. He will supply. I can easily slide into prayer as a thing I'm supposed to do. It's a spiritual discipline. It's good for me. And it is. Rather than being driven into prayer by a hunger for God to actually work. I need God to listen and do something. And an expectation that he will, in fact, actually hear me and do things. Can you relate to that? You start going, am I even actually asking God to do things? Like, there's so many things I don't even think to ask him for that are troubling me. Or I ask and I go, am I actually even expecting him to do this? Let's pray with faith. The third fruit is forgiveness. And verse 25 continues on the topic of prayer, but it shifts here. Jesus shifts from talking about prayer and faith to prayer and forgiveness. He says, by the way, when you're standing and praying, forgive others if you have something against them. Now, why does non-forgiveness matter here? Some scholars have pr- proposed that this verse was helicoptered into this context uh, late in the book's composition. Because what on earth does forgiveness have to do with what Jesus is talking about? By the way, this is often the temptation to hit the eject button. And like somebody just randomly put this verse in here. And what we do is we obscure a lot of, of deep wisdom that God has to teach us when we sit and we just meditate and go, wait, there, there must be a connection here. These books are perfect and there is a connection. Don't short circuit the wisdom scripture has to teach us. What does forgiveness have to do with prayer and faith? Well, the answer is that forgiveness is part of the fruit that Christ is cultivating among us. Again, he's describing the new people, the, the new worshiping community and all the fruit that God means to bring from our lives. And this text is teaching that Christ's forgiven people are marked with forgiveness toward one another. Forgiveness is evidence of new spiritual life. So if we have an outstanding, unresolved complaint with a brother or sister or someone else, if we are holding on bitterly to a grudge in our heart, we may, we may be sophisticated enough to know we can't say that or mistreat the person and just maybe say, yes, I forgive you. But in the depths of our hearts, it's still there. We are demonstrating a lack of trust in the Lord. And we may be evidencing that we have never received forgiveness for our own sins. Jesus assumes, by the way, look, his disciples will sin. We do every day. He also assumes we'll sin against one another. We'll need forgiveness from the Lord and we'll need to receive and give forgiveness to one another for our sins. We'll be sinned against as we'll sin against each other. This problem of sin and our inability to work our own way out of it without the gift of forgiveness. Of course, this points to the central reason for Jesus coming and our greatest need of him. Because all have sinned, says the book of Romans, a lot. All have sinned a lot, by the way, and fall short of the glory of God. And the, and the Romans also teaches that the wages of sin is death, which is eternal death. And we heard some of that destruction and wrath language from Jeremiah 24 earlier and it's it's dark language but it's true it's the holiness of God reacting in anger against true wickedness but God in love has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to accomplish salvation and to conquer death so that we who believe 
can experience the forgiveness of God that we so desperately need. Uh, Perhaps you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ and you want to know more about what this looks like. Either you need more convincing, you're not sure, do I need forgiveness of sin? Or you do know you need it. I just want to know how to receive God's forgiveness. If so, if it would be of any benefit to you, I'd love to talk with you after the service about how you can know and enjoy Christ this way. But friends, brothers and sisters, what will we do with other sins against us? Will Christ's new garden produce the sweet fruit of forgiveness? even as we're trusting in him and pouring out our hearts before him in prayer. By the way, does it take faith in prayer toward the Lord to forgive one another? These things are intimately connected. So what's the condition of our hearts? Are we holding on to bitterness against anyone? Are we bringing a layer of hypocrisy into our worship of the Lord? I'm thankful to say we all, we all are growing. We all need to keep growing. But I'm thankful to say that here at River City Grace, I have tasted much of the sweet fruit of faith and prayer and forgiveness of a people devoted to Christ. So just keep on with these things. This morning, God's word has shown us that Jesus is the Lord who purges false fruit and cultivates the real thing. We've seen Jesus' lordly action in the temple, his rejection of Israel's false fruit of hypocrisy and his commendation of true fruit, which is faith, prayer, and forgiveness all of which flow from his forgiveness of us. Will we be the fruitful community that he saved us to be? Will we fulfill the purpose of our creation, the purpose of our redemption, to issue forth in the righteousness and praise that please God? May the Lord be pleased to make his word, even as we've heard it this morning, fruitful toward that end of happy abundance in our lives before him. To that end, let's pray. Our God, we trust you. We know you've sent Jesus as the redeemer for our sins, the ransom to pay the price to forgive us. And we know that you are working in us to produce fruit. Your spirit is making life in us. We pray that these things would continue. Make us a people who trust you more and more resolutely because of your character. Make us a people who pray more and more urgently and fervently and frequently with imaginations illumined by your promises in Scripture who take you seriously at your word and pray big things because you're a big God. And may we be a people with soft hearts toward one another that feel daily what a weight you have lifted off us in the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. May we gladly extend it to one another. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.